Welcome to the Word Ministry of Resurrection Church, where Dr. Joseph G. Matera is the senior pastor and presiding bishop. We trust that the following message will be a blessing. Open up your hearts and allow the Holy Spirit to minister to you through the preaching and teaching of one of God's choice servants. Thank you, God. You called us for such a time as this in your kingdom. Father, we thank you, God, that you're going to breathe on the word of God the way you did through the worship in answer to our prayer. We commit this year to you. Thank you for this church that fasted and prayed all week at a consecration of the first fruits of our year to you. Thank you, God, for what you're going to say in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I want to talk about keeping first things first. And, you know, the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, Do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? So he's talking about all the typical things that we're distracted with. He said, for the Gentiles, and of course, there were only Jewish believers in those days. The Gentiles were those who were not in covenant with God. He said, for the Gentiles, seek after all these things. And so the Gentiles have an excuse to seek these things because their priority is not God, and they don't have faith in God, and they don't trust God's going to provide because they're not in covenant with God. At the end of the day, they're not fully excused if they don't seek God as creator, even though they don't know him the way the Jews did. But he said the Gentiles seek after all these, so in our day would be those who don't know the Lord, because most of us are Gentiles. But seek first the kingdom. Somebody say, seek first. Seek first. The kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. I remember getting to know a man by the name of Harold Bradison. I think he was 92 when I first met him. God used him very powerfully in the 1960s and 70s. He was even allegedly translated physically from one nation to the next in the spirit uh, so he could share the gospel with world leaders. And uh, he heard me speak uh, on a few occasions, and we became friends about a year before he passed on to be with the Lord. One of the things he said always uh, riveted me. He said, if you keep the things that God wants to be first, first in your life, then what you put second will never be hurt. So that's what Jesus is saying here. Keep first my kingdom. And what we want to do is unpack what that means. And so some questions to ask ourselves is, have I lost any zeal or passion for Christ that I had when I was first saved? I remember after being a Christian for a few years, I noticed that those who were saved for a few years weren't as passionate about God as they were when they first got saved. You know, they say when you first come into a relationship, you're in the honeymoon stage. Then you plow to disillusionment, and then reality, and then you come to what you really believe in any relationship, whether it's a church, a business, a relationship with a woman or a man. 
Um, so you can't judge a relationship when you first come into it because you're on the honeymoon stage. It's the mature people who plow through disillusionment and come into reality. But I've been on the honeymoon stage with Jesus for 42 years. I've never been disillusioned. That's amazing. And um, I came to Christ January 10th, 1978, which means I think it was, I don't know what it was. It was what's today's date? The 12th? So that means two days ago was Friday. It's my 42nd birthday in the Lord. So um, what I found is that the key to my life and to me what God is unpacking today is keeping God as your first love. That's the key to everything else. Everything else will follow. Don't let anything distract you. That's what Jesus is saying. Keep first his kingdom and his righteousness. Do not seek after other things more than him. And so we want to ask ourselves the question, have we lost any of the zeal and passion for Christ that we had when we first saved? Are we intentionally, because it does mean intent, are we intentionally putting God first in every area of our life? And then, if we're not, what in my life is as important or almost as important as Jesus Christ? Is it worth it? What we're going to use as a case study is the Ephesian church. Um, just quickly go to Acts, the book of Acts chapter 19. And that book um, of Acts is, is quite fascinating to me. I read it constantly. But it talks about the birth of the Ephesian church. We're going to just read through parts of this in Acts 19. In verse 1, it says that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And so he looked for disciples or made disciples. He didn't build a church. He didn't, Paul didn't try to plant churches. He made disciples, and then the disciples built churches. When you try to plant churches, you may or may not have disciples. You have to build everything on making disciples. And hopefully we'll get into what that means. And my book, The Jesus Principles, is all about that. So he found disciples, and then it goes on to say that he spoke boldly in the synagogue for several months. They eventually rejected him. So he went, in verse 9, into the lecture hall of the school of Tyrannius. He wound up lecturing and dialoguing with people. And this continued for... Two years in this rented hall. It was a philosophical hall. And what was the result of his ministry there? All, not some, all who dwelt in the region of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So we're talking about a group of powerful disciples that spread the gospel outside of that lecture hall. The gospel was never meant to be enclosed in a building. When Jesus told us to be his witnesses, he said to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, meaning that we're to plant the gospel in cities, not in buildings on Sunday. This is just to equip you. Your real mission begins when you leave the building. Monday is when you evangelize, when you make disciples, when you, people should come to Christ before they come to church. You shouldn't depend on me to lead people to Christ with altar calls. 
You should be leading people to Christ, casting demons out, getting them healed. It should be a celebration when they come in, not a conversion. Now, if you don't know how to do it, of course, bring them here. But you need to learn how to do it. That's what a disciple does. A disciple leads other people to Christ and disciples other people. Have you made a disciple this year? Are you making disciples in the past year? Have you made any? A disciple makes other disciples. They don't just show up on Sunday and get entertained. I pray that you're not here to get entertained and get fed because you should have got fed before you got here. This is for being equipped for hearing from God together, having communion together, worshiping together, not so that you could get fed. People say, oh, I don't know if I'm getting fed. I'm, I'm going to leave the church. Well, people haven't said that to me in many years. But, um, well, what are you doing depending on us to feed you? Unless you're a baby Christian, you should be feeding yourself and feeding others. As a matter of fact, if you don't feed others, then you'll never be fed because Jesus said my meat is to do the will of him who sent me. He was fed when he was ministering to the woman at the well. So if you're not sharing the gospel, you're not going to get fed. That feeds you. When I lead someone to Christ, I'm so excited. It's amazing. When I help people, I'm so excited. When I see people's lives transformed, I'm excited. That feeds my soul. So that's also what we have to understand here. And so that also feeds our passion because it gives us a purpose for God, in God. So he looked for disciples, he discipled them, and he lectured for two years all who dwelt in the region of Asia, not in the building of Tyrannus. There was an outside impact. And then uh, all of them heard the word of the Lord Skipping over a few things, Paul moved in great miracles. People tried to imitate him by casting a demon out of a person. The demon leaped on these seven sons of, of a high priest Sceva, beat them up, and look at the result. Verse 17 says, And this became known both to Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus in a whole city. And fear fell on all the residents, and the name of Jesus was magnified. So we see an amazing church was started through making disciples. The fear of Jesus fell on the city. You know, I'm glad we had great worship here today. But I would like to see the fear of God fall on Sunset Park, Bay Ridge, Park Slope, on all of New York City. Wouldn't that be great? That's what happened here. We could pray. There are revivals that took place in the 19th century where if you came into a proximity of a town, you would feel the spirit and repent even before you got into the city. The presence of God was so strong when uh, he fell in the days of Charles Finney that everybody in a city would actually get saved. Everybody in a town, the presence of God was that strong. So we can believe God for God. I mean, I can't tell you how many people said as they were walking by our church, the Spirit of God, something told them to come in. A lot of people have come into our church through a supernatural encounter with God. I'd like to see a supernatural encounter with everybody on this block. I would like to see a supernatural Why not? It's here in the Bible. 
This is not descriptive only, it's prescriptive. It means that we should believe for this. God never just told us something to tantalize us and to tease us. He told us something so we can imitate it and believe for the same results. So we see this is a powerful church. And then, verse 23, it says, Around that time, there arose no small commotion about the way. The way is how they describe Christians. Then it, they wound up being that because less people were buying the idols that were dedicated to Diana of the Ephesian um, city, who was the goddess that they worshipped, there was a riot, and they called an official assembly to know what to do because the economics now were shifting. And so as the city was impacted, people start, started spending their money differently. They stopped worshiping idols. They stopped buying the idols. And if the gospel really permeates a city, there will be a reformation that affects the politics, that affects the economics, that affects education, because the Bible says, let your light shine before men. It says that you are the salt of the earth. He didn't say you're just the salt of the subculture of the church, but he said the salt of the earth, the light of the world. And so whatever we do here should impact outside areas. So a riot took place because the economic values of the city shifted. This is amazing. I read all that just to tell you how powerful this church was. And matter of fact, four years after he founded the church, he wrote the book of Ephesians to explain to them why they should believe for those kind of things, what happened based on the fact that it was normal to believe because of what Jesus did on the cross. And in Ephesians chapter 1, this summarizes why that took place, why all of Asia Minor was affected. And when you look at the churches of the book of Revelation chapter 2 and 3, there were seven churches mentioned. All of those churches were planted as a result of Paul doing what he did in Acts 19. The church of Ephesus became a resource hub it wound up planting at least 10 churches that we know of. It could have been even more. Churches in Asos, Miletus, uh, Laodicea. So many churches were planted from that one church, very similar to our church, where many churches and leaders have come out of our church. And one of the things he says in the book of Ephesians four years later, he's basically looking back, he's trying to give them a theology to show them the power of the kingdom, to show them, why something like that happened, and he said in Ephesians 1 that God re uh, revealed his purpose to them. In verse 10, he says that, what is the purpose? That in the dispensation or the administration of the fullness of the time, meaning the culmination of human history, the fullness of all time, what is God going to do? He may gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and on earth in him, in whom also you have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So here Paul is saying our inheritance is what? Well, verse 10 shares the context of that word. 
He says, our inheritance is not just speaking in tongues. Our inheritance is not waiting to go to heaven. It's not the rapture. Our inheritance is participating in the renewal of the whole earth. Because he says, what he's looking for is that in the fullness of the times, he's gathering together in one. In other words, he's aligning everything in Christ that are in heaven and on earth, meaning things seen and unseen, physical and spiritual. The heavens and the earth are one day going to be fully united as God's holy temple again. We see that in Revelation 21 when the holy city, the new Jerusalem, comes down out of uh, heaven on earth. That's the culmination. And basically when you see that, it's in the, in the, in the form, that city is in the form of a temple uh, a cube. When God started, he made the universe his temple. When God ends, he's making it his temple. And basically what he's saying is that we are now participating, that in the fullness of the time he's gathering together in one, all things in Christ, not just the church, not just spiritual things, but politics, economics, mathematics, the sea, the uh, creatures in the air, the cosmos, everything is being united in Christ. Because if he's not Lord of everything, then he's really not the creator, then he's not Lord at all. And then he says, in him also we have obtained our inheritance. In the original, there's no periods, there's no chapters. So he's saying here that our, our inheritance is to participate in aligning all things in Christ. Which is why we preach the kingdom of God not just the local church. So he's explaining to them, basically, giving them a theology that shows why all of Asia was transformed, why they were able to plant so many churches, why out of that one lecture hall they changed the economics of Asia Minor, why the fear of God fell on the whole city, not just in the hall of Tyrannus. Why the word of the Lord multiplied? Because he's called us to participate in the gathering of everything. Now you would think this church would never ever lapse. But unfortunately, one generation later, John was the bishop after Paul was beheaded. Uh, if you look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul had instructed Timothy to set things in order and correct some of the elders that were wayward. And Paul had warned them in Acts 20 that after I depart, grievous wolves are going to come in, making disciples after themselves. So he knew something was going to happen. Powerful church. Just one generation later, less than 40 years later, as Ephesians was written in... A.D. 62, I believe. He founded it in A.D. 56 to 58. Less than one generation later, when John was the bishop, these were the words Jesus wrote to this very church. You have to understand something. Every church is only one generation away from extinction. The light of your own family is only one generation away from extinction. If you don't pass the gospel down to your biological children, you don't have a generational blessing. What good is it if you win the world and lose your children? 
What good is it if you die and you don't have spiritual children? And so as powerful as this church was, they didn't keep fanning the flames of passion for God. They became one of those churches that was operating on all cylinders. They had the right gospel, the right doctrine. They had great administration. They were working hard for God. They had the systems. But Jesus said, I have one thing against you. Bam. You have left your first love. All these other things don't matter. So that's what he said. He said to the angel, that's the messenger, the apostle, the bishop of the church of Ephesus, write these things, says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, this is Revelation chapter 2, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. One of these days, I'm going to preach on the book of Revelation and explain all this in detail, but right now is not the time. I know your works. Listen to this. I know your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. So they had a, a, a high standard of ethics. They didn't tolerate sexual morality in the church. You have tested those who say they are apostles and are not. They wouldn't let someone call themselves some if they weren't. And you have found them to be liars. They'd call them out. You're not an apostle. You're a liar. Right? So far, so good. God is just praising them. And you have persevered and you have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. I'll sign up for all of that. I mean, this is great. Maybe Jesus was using the sandwich approach. Start off with praise, correct, and then the bread at the end, show them some love. But after all this praise, he said, nevertheless, in spite of the fact that you've not grown weary, you have had patience, you've tested false apostles, you have a standard of holiness, you have works and labor, you can't bear those who are evil and in spite of all that, he said, nevertheless. Oh, I don't want that word spoken over me, nevertheless. Nevertheless, I have this against you. Jesus actually had something against them. He's not just some hippie walking around. I love you. I love you. Oh, everything is beautiful. I don't know what kind of Jesus the world believes in, but it's not the biblical Jesus. He said, I have something against you. He said, you have left your first love. These people love the ministry more than Jesus. They love right doctrine more than Jesus. You can love the Bible and not love Jesus and come to Jesus. There's people who are scholars. They just study. They know all of these things, and they argue over every little thing. Jesus said that you have the Scriptures, and yet you haven't come to me. That's John 6. They didn't have a relationship with Jesus. I don't want to just know the words of the Bible. I want to know the author of the Bible. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Now, without the Bible, I can't know the author of the Bible. I know God through his word. That's why I pour over it every day. But I'm trying to mingle with him. I'm trying to grow in him. I'm trying to learn. I'm trying to have an experiential encounter with him through his word. 
not just intellect. And so, in spite of all of this, he said, you've left your first love. Wow. Jesus considered him backslidden, even though the church was humming, even though they were growing, even though they were... At that point, they had the largest church in, in the whole of Christendom. Some scholars say at least 50,000 people were part of their house church movement there. So he said, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, meaning you're backslidden, even though your church is humming, even though you have a lot of people, even though you have great systems, even though you have right doctrine, even though you have high standards, even though you have the right confessions of faith, you are backslidden. Remember from where you have fallen, repent. I thought repentance is just for the unsaved. No. He said repent and do the first works. What is the first work? Love. Loving God. Do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand. What is the lampstand? That's a symbol for the church. He says I'm going to remove your church. From its place unless you repent. Wow. Jesus was so offended by this church that he threatened to remove them. And removing a lampstand doesn't necessarily mean that the church didn't exist anymore. They did exist for a few hundred years, but God didn't consider them a church. He's talking about what he thinks a church is. There's a lot of churches that aren't real churches. You call one a synagogue of Satan. There are churches that are operating. They're all happy. They have their tithes, their offerings, their people. But the, the lampstand was removed, and they didn't even know it. It says that the spirit left Samson, and he didn't even know it. Anything you could do without God, any church that operates in a way that they don't have to believe and trust God, Maybe the lampstand is gone. That means their effectiveness, their effective witness. Now don't shout me down because I'm preaching good. <laughs> and so, we need to understand this because everything hinges on this. This is nothing new for those who knew the scriptures. The great text in the Old Testament is called the Shema. The Shema, if you say the Shema to a Jew, he will be in reverence and he will quote the following. In Deuteronomy 6, it says in verse 4 to 9, Hear, O Israel, I get shivers just reading this, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's the Trinity right there. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. With all your soul, performance isn't enough, service isn't enough, and with all your might. And then he says, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Pass your faith down to your kids. How? Talk of them when you sit in your house. It's not just Bible studies once a week. When you walk by the way, while you're doing life, you talk about God. You use everything as a learning moment. When you lie down, when you rise, etc. The Shema teaches that putting God first should be integrated into every aspect of our life. Can't be that you're cold towards God on Monday in the office 
gossiping about others while you're at the water cooler. And then on Sunday, I love you, Jesus. I love you. Oh, oh, oh. No. The Shema says that loving God has to be integrated into every aspect of your life, not just Sabbath, not just synagogue. And so we're going to talk about three ways to put God first. And they deal with three areas, time, treasures, and talent. This is how we love God first. Time. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 5, verse 15, he says, Look carefully how you live, not as unwise, but as wise how? Making the best use of your time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So God tells us to be a steward of our time. Our time. Tell me what you do with your time, and I'll tell you who you love the most. How you prioritize, especially your discretionary time. Your free time. So we need to make time for God, of course, to pray, to study his word. That goes without saying. You know, we're called to be disciples. That word disciple means to be disciplined. That means it's not just how you feel. I don't feel like being in church every week. Sometimes I want to take a week off here and there. I haven't missed one Sunday because I was sick in 40, well, 42 years being a Christian. Let me tell you something. Being a disciple means you're all in. It means discipline. No matter how you feel, you're going to worship him. I remember there's one uh, song we used to sing a long time ago, and I had to stop it. But the words were, I just feel like praising him. And I said, no, no, no. Even if you don't feel like it, you're called to praise him because it is good to praise the Lord. And so our time... Somebody say, my time needs to be prioritizing God. It's not just, you know, obviously you're working a regular job, 8, 10 hours, not like you're going to be reading your Bible all day. No, but you're doing it unto the Lord. And you're loving God in your heart and mind while you're doing that. But your discretionary time is different. You have discretion to use it wisely. How about our treasures? We need to place the highest value in our life on Jesus Christ. It can't be that Jesus is part of your life or Jesus is important. If someone says to me, God is important to me, well, I don't know what they mean by that, but he better not just be important. God doesn't tolerate important. God wants you to say he is my life. And so Jesus said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. So our treasures, there's a parable he said in Matthew 13, starting with verse 45. Jesus said, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, he went out and sold all that he had and bought it. He sold everything he had. He gave up everything for that one pearl. Jesus is that pearl of great price. That's what he was saying. We need to give up everything for him in our hearts. He becomes our God, our Lord. 
our treasure. And so the proof of our treasure is what we sacrifice the most for, what we invest the most financially in. That is the proof of what we value the most. Show me where you spend your money, show me your credit cards, your checkbook, and I'll tell you what you love the most in your life. And so Jesus has to have the highest value. And of course, we all know that biblically and practically, he tells us that the first 10% is mine. Anything else is an offering. Tithing is not giving to God. When you say, well, I gave uh, you know, 10,000 last year. Let me look at it. Is that your tithe? Yeah, I made 100,000. You didn't give anything to God. That belongs to God anyway. The offering, in our case, it's the vision fund, is when you're really giving. If, you haven't, if you're not even giving a tithe, you're not even giving anything to God. In God's mind, not in the IRS, not the way we report it, not how we see it, but in God's mind, he says, the tithe belongs to me. Throughout the whole Bible. This is not a message on tithing. And so, how we gauge... We, meaning not us as leaders, but God, the Bible, uh, treasure, is also shown in what we invest our money in, not just our time. Last but not least, our talents. Did you know that the way God wired you is intentional? Your personality, your natural abilities. Because he wired you and created you to worship him through your work. So we don't worship God just when we sing songs. One of the Hebrew root words for work in the Old Testament is the word for work. Why? Because the way God wired you, gave you gifts and talents to work a certain way. Now there are some countries where you cannot choose what you will do for a living. They will tell you what you're going to do. There are some countries they'll tell you, you're going to be an Olympian at three years old. You're going to be practicing in the gymnastics, and you're going to do this. And you're... So what do we do with those countries? Well, whatever you do, you're still using your natural gifts and abilities. There are even people who were slaves who were born again, but they served their master unto the Lord, not to that person. That's what kept their sanity. That's how they were able to continue to worship God. They didn't look at their boss, their master, their wife, their this, their that. They did it unto Lord. It was an act unto the Lord. It was an act of worship. It's not about us. It's about him. It's not about others. It's about him. And then when we love him, we'll love others. If he's not first, then we can't even serve others correctly. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, it says, whatever you eat, or drink, or whatever you do. Somebody say, whatever you do. Do all to the glory of God. You could actually eat your dinner to the glory of God. You could wash dishes to the glory of God. Whatever you do. It's not just singing songs. It's not just once a week on Sunday. It's not just when you have your CD on or you have your Pandora. It's not just when you're using your lips. Whatever you do. It should be an act of worship. Again, I'm going to repeat, the Hebrew root word for worship is the same as work in 
Uh, one of the Hebrew words for worship is the same as work in the Old Testament. The Jews looked at hard work as an act of worship, using their gifts and talents as an act of worship. Wow, I love that. That means if I'm called to be an architect, I'm a minister of the gospel who's an architect. If I'm a police officer, I am walking the beat of my community as an act of worship, serving the Lord, representing God to the residents as a police officer. If I'm a firefighter, I do that unto the Lord. If I'm a mother, I do that unto the Lord. Whatever I am, whatever I use my gifts for, if I am a professor of mathematics as I'm writing uh, uh, the Pythagorean theorem, I could be filled with the Holy Ghost as I'm teaching my students. I'm filled with the Spirit while I'm teaching them geometry or calculus or physics. I'm filled with the Spirit because it's an act of worship. And I'm a minister of God in the classroom. Pastors can't reach these kids. Kids don't want to go into church. You are their pastor when you have a business or when you're a professor or when you're a police officer. Whatever you do. Do it unto the Lord. You are God's minister. It's an act of love. So we put God first in our time, our treasure, and our talents. That proves where our heart is at. I don't care how much you cry when you mention the name of Jesus. I don't care how much you cry, how much you dance when we worship. What do you do with your time? What do you do with your treasures? What do you do with your talent? That shows if you have left your first love, or Jesus is your first love. We trust that you were blessed. For more information regarding our church, please go to our website at www.resurrectionchurchofny.com or call 718-436-0242, extension 0.